Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin and welcome to another week from our icebox, although apparently soon to be thawing state of Wisconsin. It's good to be back. I've been away from a couple week, for a couple weeks and it's good to see Claire Zauke staring at me on the Zoom screen. Claire's our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Claire, good to see you again. Thank you. Good to be seen. All right. And as always, Robert Craig is also with us. Robert is the executive director here at Citizen Action. Robert, hello. Uh, greetings to our digital and our radio audiences. Yeah, definite greetings. Again, uh, been gone for a couple of weeks. Uh, good to be back. And uh, we have a ton to talk about. It was a big week. We had the president, our President Biden, that's, uh, that's nice to say. Uh, president Biden visited Milwaukee this week. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, we had an election. That's right. We had a primary election. And uh, I'm sure some of you who are listening to me probably didn't vote. The turnout was quite low. But then again, this, is, this cycle is actually the lowest turnout cycle. So we'll talk more about that. There's an important uh, Department of Public Instruction uh, superintendent election. And uh, the uh, other big in-state news this week is Governor Evers presented his state budget. And this is big. We've been talking about this. For about three months, we've been talking about this pretty much uh, since the election ended, and and um, all of our listeners are well aware of this, and many of our members and activists, because we've been organizing around this and trying to get important things in the budget. And Claire, I'm going to kick it to you because I think the big news in this budget, and we'll talk more about how this is a very different budget from the governor's first biannual budget that he presented two years ago. Uh, and particularly on healthcare, we did a tremendous amount of organizing around expanding access to healthcare around Badger Care. That good news, it's in the budget. Tell us more about uh, uh, the budget, particularly around healthcare and what's in it. Sure. Yeah. So this is a very, very exciting budget from the governor when it comes to its healthcare provisions. Um, and in fact, the top three or even you could say four priorities of Citizen Action of Wisconsin as far as as far as our health care policy priorities for the state budget uh, made it into this proposal. And um, that is is beyond exciting and a victory that we here at Citizen Action want to share with everybody who um, helped us in advocating for these proposals. Um, so the first one that we all knew was going to be in there um, is Badger Care expansion. So obviously um, that is a, a really big deal for people who would gain more affordable coverage uh, through expansion, but it's also a big financial deal for the state, especially if the federal COVID relief bills that are going through budget reconciliation in Congress right now get passed, because then that would give us an extra potentially billion dollars to support our state's Badger Care program in general. Um, so the timing is really, really good for expansion right now um, from a financial perspective. The second thing, though, that this budget did um, was that is really exciting, and this is probably the single biggest thing that the state could do to increase the quality and affordability of coverage in this state um, is support a Badger Care public option proposal. And so what the governor did was direct the Office of the Commissioner of Insurance and the Department of Health Services to study 
public state-based public option programs and to develop a Wisconsin model and, and implement it no later than 2025, unless the ACA goes away at the federal level, in which case they got to do it by 2022, which I think is a really smart provision given that the ACA is still being litigated in front of the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so basically a, a public option would give everyone in the state the ability to, or the option to purchase their health insurance, their health coverage through a state program of some kind, um, just the same way that right now you can purchase coverage through a private insurance company on in the marketplace. Um, so there's two more things I wanna talk about, but I thought I would, I would pause there to see if anybody else um, wants to, to react to those first two proposals. Okay, yeah, and there's more to the budget that we're gonna to get to, but. I think Claire's right to focus first on health care. Um, let me just say what, at Citizen Action, our, our theory of change here is we need to get to health care as a fundamental right guaranteed in our democracy. So, But we know that's not doable in the state of Wisconsin in its current politics because we don't have enough power as progressives. So what these are, what we've been fighting for is legitimate stepping stones toward that ad, that end, but also along the spirit that Rome was not built in a day, but Rome was built. So it does have to be built. And so Claire talked about two advances. We know prescription drug prices are out of control because at the national level, the pharmaceutical industry has had the power uh, to have unregulated monopolies that the, where the public pays for the drugs to be developed and they charge whatever the market will bear and whatever Wall Street wants them to charge in order to get the maximum profit. And that's been a big problem with the pandemic because we are, at this point, not producing as many vaccines as we could because of the exclusive monopolies that we paid for the these vaccines. And they're not going to third world countries and uh, lesser developed countries, and that's going to keep the pandemic going because of intellectual property. So there's a lot to deal with. This really leans into what the state power is to start to crack down on price gouging. I mean, this is price gouging by any standard, what they're charging for insulin, other things. And so the Prescription Drug Affordability Board is part of that. There are other provisions. It's a huge burning public issue, a political issue. It's going to be hard for Republicans to say no and then stand up to voters. And it's really good state policy, but of course, we'll also be talking as we move along about the big federal policy that's needed to, to rein in the pharmaceutical monopolies. So uh, that's really important. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, yeah, Robert, uh, just to underscore uh, uh, what you just mentioned about this board, it was the one of the, the top testing issue in a poll. This has widespread support. So this is something that we know Republican voters, independent voters, are all being hurt by the price gouging on prescription drugs. So this is an important issue that uh, certainly uh, should put a lot of Republican legislators in a very tough position. And then on healthcare, look, the top public issue has been healthcare affordability. That's the burning issue last two elections. And the reason is it's going up and up, whether you're insured or not, people are avoiding care or, or they're choosing between rent, a family vacation, uh, anything, everything, their children's education and healthcare costs, even when they are insured. And so we've been big and we still are really happy that Badgercare expansion is in here going up and taking the federal money to go up to the federal rate for Badgercare, basically, of eligibility. Uh, Claire explained the public option the key thing about the public option is you get, if you use Badger Care, Badger Care benefits in a public program, 
substantially lower premiums. Our last report from the fiscal bureau, state fiscal bureau, was 24% lower for virtually non-existent co-pays and deductibles and no haggling with a corporate insurance company. And it puts them on notice that they have to compete. You could still choose private corporate insurance if you want. So wildly popular. The poll, uh, there, there's polling both on that and the Prescription Drug Affordability Board that's widely popular. And then puts Governor Evers in a position of being for it. So if they kill it, they can go to the elect- electorate next year and say, we didn't want to do anything about it. And then one other throw in is we have been fighting since the inception of ACA uh, under Scott Walker and under, under the late Doyle administration for a state health insurance marketplace where we could really leverage more and get more accountability for price and cost and access to health insurance. And that is also in Evers' budget. At long last, uh, Governor Doyle had produced a whole blueprint that, of course, Walker tossed aside. Claire? Uh, yeah, you know, they, uh, you know, you and Robert really ran with the last uh, two points I was going to make. I said there were four big things that were done on healthcare in the budget. Um, I listed the first two and, um, you know, number three and four that I was going to point out were the prescription drug affordability board and um, creating state uh, healthcare exchange. So those are really uh, really exciting things that uh, we should be fighting hard to keep in the budget. Um, I would say the prescription drug affordability board is something that I would hope we could get bipartisan support from the legislature to keep in the budget. So if you are out there listening to the show and you have Republican uh, representatives, I would implore you to call them and say that you support the prescription drug affordability board and that we we need to be prioritizing um, the affordability of medicines in this budget uh, that that should be a top priority of all of our electeds yes claire is absolutely right and claire points to uh, another point the reason this stuff is in the budget is not just because governor evers and his team which is you know has a lot on their plate just fathomed it right These were created as issues in elections. Members of the public were involved. People ran for office. And a lot of Citizen Action members and others called the governor or talked to him in listening sessions, et cetera. So he heard it. And he's a governor. He, of course, wants to be responsive to the people. That's why he really highlighted the listening sessions in his budget address. And so to keep it in there, we have to keep up, keep that up. To make democracy work, we have to be part of democracy and the outside public role and organized groups, organized groups that help average citizens focus on what we can actually win and how to pool our power together statewide by having thousands of us rather than a single person. That's how we're going to get a lot of these things in the budget or set them up as election issues and get people who will do it next time. One of the two. We prefer to get it now, but if we can't, then we want to take it to the ballot box. And with that, we have got to take our first break here at the Battleground Wisconsin for Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about Governor Evers' state budget. She announced and had a big speech this week on Tuesday. And we've been talking about this for a long time and how important this budget is. We we, this is the one point, given the makeup of the legislature, where the governor has a lot of leverage. And so we have been talking about that. We have been urging and encouraging the, the governor to have a budget 
that would have a lot of these issues. And so um, it is very worth pointing out, right, how different this budget is than the last cycle. And, and I think, Claire and Robert, you really did a good job of laying out how on health care, um, even if the Republicans don't move on any some of these things, uh, they will be set up as an election issue. Um, Claire, I uh, wanted to go to you first. There are a number. I, well, first, if there's any other health care things, give you an opportunity on that to finalize. But wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about potentially other things in the budget that uh, you thought are, are worth noting uh, that the governor put in. Certainly. Um, you know, I'll leave the uh, climate and energy pieces for Robert to talk about because that's uh, certainly in his bailiwick. Uh, so I'll mention a few things that I think are exciting. Um, uh, automatic voter registration is obviously a huge uh, expansion of democracy and the, the right to participate in democracy with ease. So that is certainly something that Wisconsin should have done a long time ago and that Governor Evers deserves some praise for including in the budget. Super excited about that. Um, there's obviously a lot of buzz about the legalization of marijuana, um, and um, that is something that organizations like Normal and elected officials like Melissa Agard out of Madison deserve a lot of praise for working on for many, many years to sort of mainstream that issue, and is absolutely something that will have positive health impacts, positive justice impacts, and uh, positive mental health impacts for uh, a lot of people. So those, those are two things that I would point to that I that I was a little bit surprised to see in the budget, but I'm super excited about. Robert? Yeah, oh, sorry, Matt, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, Claire, I... You know, I was also struck by what you mentioned about the uh, uh, the registration. In addition, I want to also mention uh, expanding early voting, giving giving clerks you know the discretion to to have more early voting and allowing them to count the ballots uh, early. That was just one of the things that uh, put a lot of states uh, this election cycle at a disadvantage. It was good to see that in. Uh, Robert, uh, further thoughts. Claire was right to point out automatic registration. If you think about voting, it's ridiculous that it's so hard that we have this antiquated old style system that's hard to get into with a fundamental right. We know where people are. We have their state information. They have driver's licenses. There's a lot of other state data. They pay taxes. They should just be, as a citizen of the state of Wisconsin, able to vote, period, as soon as they turn, uh, to turn 18. So there's that. And by the way, we were involved in this, and this is important, bearing in mind, way back to the late Doyle administration. And when I was program director at Citizen Action, before I was executive director, we worked very intensely with the top of the Doyle administration, his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and had an automatic voting registration system supported by the governor. And we couldn't get through a Democratic legislature. So just to give a little history here, think how different Wisconsin history is if, if we do that. So remember that because we want to have a Democratic legislature in the foreseeable future when we get fair maps. But that doesn't guarantee anything unless you're organized as people. And with early voting, Huge. You're right to point that out, Matt. Uh, we've been very involved. We were uh, uh, one of the lead plaintiffs in the federal lawsuit that has restored a, a lot of the early voting rights in Wisconsin and prevented Walker and the legislature from limiting them more. And it, it's really important because we need to reduce access, increase access to voting, not decrease it. And we know we have one party now that wants to be uh, to, 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 to rule by rigging the system by minority rule. And we cannot allow that. That's un-American. And we need to call it out. So 
I agree on those two issues. Um, and if, by the way, I'm kind of calling out Cincinnati here, not because we're the only group. There's a lot of great grassroots groups because we're trying to call out the role of organized citizens pooling together within voluntary associations like Citizen Action, Conservation Voters, Planned Parenthood, uh, both Stella Frontera, Block, a whole lot of different groups lit. Uh, I, I'm going to not name every one, but you know what I mean, Wisconsin Farmers Union, uh, that that is what leads to change. OK, so I'm just trying to lean in that it takes a long time to get these things in a governor's budget. And even then, it's not done until you put enough pressure on Republican legislature or shift the legislature. Excellent point. And uh, I would like to just highlight one issue. Uh, it was the rollback of Act 10. Um, obviously a huge issue, something that uh, it was the timeliness of it, uh, given we're at the 10-year anniversary. I'm sure a number of folks who were involved in that, uh, your Facebook <laughs> is uh, just a wash with 10-year anniversary photos the last uh, week or so. And so the timing of that was very important. Uh, speaking of uh, just sort of looking at how Wisconsin has changed. Uh, but the right of workers to organize is actually absolutely fundamental. And it is hard to envision a truly progressive Wisconsin without workers having that right. And this only further underscores, right, that this is put in around public employees. We need to continue to expand that right to other workers. There are still far, far too many workers who functionally have no right to a union, and, and that needs to continue uh, to be a priority looking forward. Um, and just real quick, Pat, because you weren't here last week, we spent almost a segment on Act 10, so you're right to call that out last yep. week on Battleground Wisconsin. Yep. But in addition, this does roll back right to work as well, so there's also linked financial labor rights for private employees in the governor's budget. Uh, also, you know, it we can't go without saying there's a significant increase in funding uh, here, uh, 1.6 uh, billion for schools uh, and uh, an effort to try to get back to two-thirds funding. Um, we'll see this will be one of the major contentions uh, around the budget as to actually how much uh, funding goes to education given what's been going on with COVID. Uh, Claire, I wanted to go back to you and give you an opportunity to talk about anything else and then Robert, an opportunity to talk about uh, climate. You know, I covered my priority areas and I want to make sure Robert has enough time to talk about the climate pieces in this. So I'm just going to toss it back to him right away. Perfect. Robert. I may leave you some time. So I'll be thinking about what, because there's a lot in this budget, Claire, as you know, and you've been pouring through it. Uh, that is, look, climate change is a massive situation where we're on a 10-year clock to make uh, tremendous progress that requires massive reform of our economy. And what we've been leaning into and other progressives across the country is if you're going to reopen the economy in order for that climate genocide, you can also build it back in a way to use Governor uh, President Biden's uh, phrase that is equitable, that deals with the horrendous racial disparities, geographic disparities where there's a lack of rural prosperity. Everyone locked out of our economy because we've had a situation where uh, where everyone has lost ground except the very richest Americans and the very mo largest, most connected corporations. And so uh, there's, there's starting points in here, some of them that we push for very hard. Uh, is this a whole climate plan in this budget? No, but that would be approved. Probably what uh, Governor Evers put in faces an uphill battle. 
But climate for the first time became an election issue in 2020 at the national level. And we need to keep that up. And we need to keep this issue up. And a critical thing is, is that the action in Wisconsin right now is at the local level. And this does provide tools for that. It provides our biggest agenda item, uh, something that sounds very wonky on bill financing. But all it means is, is that the utility has to pay for your energy conservation upgrades that save you a ton of money and solar panels, other, other, other upgrades that reduce uh, climate impact, greenhouse gases up front. It goes into your utility bill, but the savings are so great, your utility bill goes down. So you essentially make it all back and more. You do it for free. It's attached to your house. You sell the house. Someone else just pays that utility bill. And this is a way that we could also employ a massive new workforce to do all that work. And the other level here is climate action planning is occurring at the, at the local level. In Milwaukee, where uh, Citizen Action and our partners are a lead player, in Eau Claire, in Green Bay, uh, where we're involved, and in the, in the Driftless area, where we are heavily involved and, and co-leading it with conservation voters, both rural and, in, and, uh, and pushing around La Crosse area, like La Crosse County. And so governor's budget, in addition to giving on-bill financing, which is a tool, a way to finance the conversion at the local level, uh, actually mandates that every municipality and county uh, have climate action plans, both on resiliency and mitigation. And so really pushing a process so that when we, we take back state government, which we have to do soon, we have local plans in place and constituencies behind them so we can move very quickly to meet the deadline and do it in a way that expands economic opportunity and equity for everyone. So folks, we're going to wrap up our conversation here on the state budget, but uh, I don't know, you may have heard a little of the comments from Republicans, you know, Voss saying this is, he's shocked at this. This is uh, there's poison pills. They're not serious. Uh, this is all about politics. Well, look, you know what? There's gambling at Tony Evers <laughs> place, right? Yes. This is about politics. Uh, this is a good sign that uh, we're in, he's engaging. And so we really want to encourage everybody, please. Uh, this is an important budget and we look forward to talking more about it and how we're going to continue to fight to make uh, as much of this as real as possible. But with that, we got to take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin and we're Citizen Action. Uh, Robert, before we switch topics, uh, I know you wanted uh, to make a few more comments about uh, the state budget. Yeah, it's sort of what it means for progressives. I don't think any listener to Battleground Wisconsin is unaware that uh, we support going uh, much bolder than Governor Evers did even in this budget, though this is an evolution for Governor Evers. Um, we, of course, would want to go very all the way to Medicare for all. We want to go to a real Green New Deal, right, and put that in legislation. And that's not here. So the way we are seeing it is this. Right now, the Democratic Party, because of the strength and upsurge and progressive strength, is a coalition between mo the moderate wing and the progressive wing. And there's no secret that Governor Evers comes from the moderate wing. The issue is, is that neither of us are large enough to take control of the whole party like the right has. The far right is taking control of the Republican Party. And so the only way to move on these issues is to be in partnership and alliance. And for us to move 
a moderate like Governor Evers in a more progressive direction, just like we've seen with Governor Biden. And for when he does it, us as progressives to back him up, but also to set it up so that we are actually moving in the direction we want to get and that we have to get on climate, on health care as a right, et cetera. So we are saying that this is a honest effort by establishment Democrats and by Evers to move in our direction and be bolder. And now we have to back them up against the real opposition, which is this Republican legislature. And Matt, I'm sure if we think nationally, folks like Senator Johnson. Yes, it was uh, it was a big week for Senator Johnson, and he is our next topic. Uh, Senator Johnson got the week started by trying, I, I guess maybe he's trying to gaslight the state, gaslight the country. Uh, he started to actually suggest that what we all witnessed, the armed insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th, didn't happen. It was not an armed insurrection. Um, this is this is not gone over well, and uh, it's also on the same week that a million-dollar ad campaign has been launched on television and radio against Senator Johnson. Uh, Claire, uh, this this is uh, this wasn't a great week for for the senator, although let's just say much deserved, given uh, how he's behaved pretty much since the election. He's uh, next to Trump. He might be the uh, uh, deputy inciter in chief. Yeah, so uh, his, uh, Senator Johnson's uh, exact quote that's quoted in the um, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel is, uh, this doesn't seem like an armed insurrection to me. I mean, armed, when you hear armed, don't you think of firearms? Here's the question I would like to ask, how many firearms were confiscated and how many shots were fired? And then it sort of goes on from there, right? Which is an absolutely absurd, hyper narrow definition of an armed insurrection, uh, right? I mean, especially when you consider that there were police officers who were killed in the insurrection. And when you consider that there are literal photographs of people walking through the galleries of you know, the Senate and the House of Representatives holding the types of things that you would use to kidnap people like zip ties and like other tools that can be used for um, as weapons, right? Which is which is what you know armed means. Um, and so to say, like, well, I just think of firearms as the only type of weapons, is is just hor. It's it's a horrible um, sort of straw man argument that that feels like he might be making a real argument, but when you actually look at it, is is trying to draw your attention somewhere else and is not really um, getting at the heart of what happened, which is that a, a violent mob stormed the Capitol, killed people, and a lot of them got away with it, um, including the, the president who told them to go there. Um, so the fact that he is our senator from Wisconsin uh, make, makes me ashamed. This, this is not somebody who um, deserves to be in leadership positions. Yeah, I think since Claire has completely demolished the intellectual foundations of Senator Johnson's position, I will talk more broadly. This is how extreme the modern American right has become that dominates the Republican Party. And it is not your grandfather's Republican Party anymore. And, you know, Mitch McConnell, of all people, says the House managers proved their case and that Donald Trump fomented, built, 
on big lies that the election was stolen. The audience drew these people to the Capitol with violent tendencies and pointed them at the Capitol and that he should actually be criminally liable. That is what his excuse was for not voting for impeachment. I think he didn't vote for impeachment because he's tried to still be a Republican leader, not because he wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, And so we have uh, what some have called the QAnon caucus. And what that really means is not to worry whether QAnon is the thing five years from now. But this is the the crowd that thinks Sandy Hook didn't happen, that 9-11 was a hoax, right? Uh, that um, Antifa was the one attacking uh, Congress, which the president was claiming in his um, phone call from uh, the leader of the House uh, of Republicans, McCarthy, who was begging for help. So this is our senator right now. And the problem is, is that that Trump has so taken over this party that he certainly is not going to be primary on the Republican side. So the only solution is to defeat him from the Democratic side. And that means turning out our base, but also reaching out to that small sliver of Republican and Republican-leaning independents, maybe 15% of their party, uh, that actually might be offended by this. Look, I mean, this week it's completed full circle. QAnon Ron is... There's no doubt. I mean, he this is let's remember how Hunan Ron came to power. He led, he got swept in with the Tea Party, and he was tight, especially after the primary with the Tea Party, and was immediately after his quote fiscal hawkness went away, and he knew found out that he was going to be rewarded for being with the conspiracy theorists. He has been lockstep on just about every conspiracy theory from the right. He has been lockstep with Trump on just about everything. And this week with this, this is like the ultimate, right? Like Robert, you mentioned Mitch McConnell. We just went through impeachment, right? Uh, I mean, only the best defense was that they had was somehow this was unconstitutional. The idea that you would actually try to argue that was not an armed insurrection is beyond the pale. But look, this is why 2022 is going to be extraordinarily important. Uh, QAnon Ron is up for, as, as Robert mentioned, up for re-election, not, not likely to have any kind of serious primary challenge, but he has clearly laid down you know, with the party of Trump, and uh, it is going to be one to watch. And again, over a million dollar uh, ad now has been launched against him. Uh, if you're on television, it's pretty hard to miss these ads. And he, let me just say, Matt, um, He's a national figure right now. He's making us notorious. He gets brought up as, you know, with uh, Josh Hawley and with Ted Cruz as one of the main ringleaders of uh, the QAnon faction in Congress. And so he's saying completely crazed, uh, quotable things on a regular basis whenever a reporter gets him to utter a word. So with that, I want to move and transition a little bit to a discussion about opportunity. There's real opportunity on the federal level. Um, We've talked about this before. Um, Georgia changed everything. And it's completely changed the dynamic that's occurring in Congress between progressives and what you might describe, right, is the moderates or, you know, the the more mainstream Democrats, right, who certainly uh, wield the leadership positions. Uh, But there's been a lot of movement, in particular, around the minimum wage. Uh, Minimum wage, as Many people, right, you're aware that 
to much fanfare, uh, President Biden put it into his COVID relief package. And it's going to be one of the main uh, uh, battlegrounds uh, that is going on right now, uh, where progressive leaders within Congress and and our broader movement, right, uh, are really going to be pushing to try to keep this in because this is where the leverage is. This is the opportunity. Robert, I wanted to give you, before we go to break, give us, you know, take a minute to sort of set the stage here. We could talk a little bit more about this because this fight's fundamentally important uh, and it relates also, you know, to how, how are things going to go in the future with the Biden administration? And I talked earlier about how the Democratic Party is an alliance between the surging progressive wing and an established wing that has moved left. We just had Tony Evers introduce the most left wing position he's ever taken. So he's moved. Biden's moved even more so far. And uh, Joe Biden put a $15 minimum wage in COVID relief that is scheduled to move. And it's going to have to move through a process that makes it only Democrats voting for it called budget reconciliation. And but it it's at risk it falling out. And Biden and the moderate Democrats have shown kind of weak knees on this and talking about giving away on that. But progressive legislators, Bernie Sanders, Pramila Jayapal, a number of others are unified in trying to make sure it stays in. So this is an opportunity for us to mobilize, not to treat Biden as the enemy. The man put it in his platform and in COVID relief, but to to get him to stay on that position because it would be a huge impact for the work for working people to raise the minimum wage to 15. Just huge. One of the most dramatic things we could do to improve economic opportunity and equality in this country in the short term. Well, in the near term, I got to take a commercial. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Welcome back, Battleground Wisconsin. We are talking about huge opportunity around increasing the minimum wage, something that has not been done for over a decade. Quite frankly, it's an area uh, just there's been failed opportunities. Not that there's been a ton in the last decade, uh, but huge one right now in the uh potential uh, with COVID relief. Robert wanted to give you one final opportunity on that. What, and then Claire, get your thoughts. Uh, I do want to highlight, right, also Mark Pocan has been someone who's been supportive of pushing this. And I, I really think Ron Kind is someone we need to make sure, and I want to talk a little bit more about this and make sure that he hears from folks about why this is so important. Uh, he could be an important uh, person on the House side. Yeah, I agree. And so the thing is this. So Biden has moved a great deal and, and made the huge step of putting a 50 dollars minimum wage in COVID relief. But he's been saying, well, it probably won't. Uh, parliamentarian probably won't let it be let it in. So it probably won't be there. Uh, there's a way to let it in. Uh, Bernie Sanders is working on it um, as chair of the budget committee with lawyers, as long as it has budget impact. Uh, but uh, Senator Vice President Harris can actually overrule the parliamentarian. So there's a way to force it in as long as you can hold the whole Democratic caucus together in both the House and Senate. And what's happening now is Democrats are more unified than ever as a progressive wing in both the Senate and the House. And they are pushing for it hard. But here's the thing. Our power is not money. Our, mo- our power is people. Us mobilizing to back up the progressives in Congress that include uh, Mark Procandy, as you said, include Tammy Baldwin, is critical, and then move the moderates. Ron Kind, who has voted for a 50 dollars minimum wage, but is still a target because he may well actually not uh, not be pushing or not be supporting it being 
included in COVID relief, which is the only way to do it. Otherwise, the filibuster will kill it as a standalone bill. So this is the opportunity to make this huge, important change. And it requires it, it depends. Democratic leaders in Congress are doing the right thing. Progressives, progressive activists need to unify and focus on this because this is the big win, right? Claire? Yeah, and um, I agree. So at the state level, um, you know, it's good that Governor Evers put a raise uh, of the minimum wage in the budget. It's fairly modest. Um, I, I, I wish it were greater. It's, you know, this budget is so good in so many ways. It feels it feels bad <laughs> uh, to criticize a piece of it. But, you know, this is what you do in a democracy. You're constantly pushing people to do better, be better. Um, so, so, yeah, I wish that the, the increase in the minimum wage were a bit higher and would come over a shorter period of time. That said, um, I agree with Robert that a lot of um, the advocacy on this issue should really happen at the federal level and that now is the opportunity to do it. Um, I know that the Congressional Budget Office, for example, analyzed what uh, raising the minimum wage uh, would look like, and it found that I think it was 17 million people would get a raise, including almost a million folks who'd be lifted out of poverty. I know that there are always going to be folks that say if you raise the minimum wage, then there'll be some job loss, right? But, But we're talking about poverty jobs right now, right? Jobs that people are working and still living in poverty. And this should not be a country where people are working, working full time and living in poverty, even though they're earning wages. You know, it it is an immoral thing for our country to have uh, full-time jobs where people live in poverty. So so we really um, have an opportunity here, to Robert's point right now, if if we capitalize upon it, to to lift people out of poverty. Robert, what are you thinking? Yeah, I agree. I was going to add uh, to Claire's points. This is where Biden was weak, this and on student loan debt in the town hall in Milwaukee. And he got defensive when a small business owner asked. He said, yes, the CBO says it would cost jobs, but that'll be diminished. There are other economists. And he didn't make the strong arguments. And the first one is the one Claire made about how many Americans need a raise and have needed a raise for decades and how moving up the whole income floor, that actually affects everyone above the minimum wage, so it all moves up. Uh, but in addition to that, the minimum wage increases across the country, it's been happening in a lot of states, not Wisconsin, have not cost jobs in over a decade. So the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, is working on some old economic model that's more theory than practice, and there are a lot of other economic, economists and think tanks that have come to a different conclusion, and here's what you need to say to a small business owner that Biden didn't say. If you, you're worried that you have to pay higher wages with your current, you know, business, right? Truth is, if we give a raise to all of your customers, they can spend more money and you have more money to pay. And so the way the economy grows is putting money in people's pockets because average people have to spend that money in the community. Rich people can park it overseas or just sit on it or make it intergenerational wealth, which is why cuts for the rich do not generate growth the way something like a minimum wage would if you, if you really give more money to working families who need to spend more because they're not meeting their basic needs. So I just want to underscore what Robert just said there, because I think there's really important things going on. One is the idea that the amount of lost jobs. I think uh, those numbers are off, but Claire, and you brought this up, this idea that somehow we're going to protect these poverty wage jobs that keep people in poverty 
that are part of some of the systemic problems that we have that are the choke on our economy, when there's an opportunity to lift everybody up, which by the way, if you do it across the board, it, it's competitive for everybody. Everybody got to everybody's got to pay those higher wages. So it changes the dynamic. And Robert pointed out accurately, and the CBO does this well, brings so much more into the economy, which is going to be amazing for government, right? In terms of revenues, but just in terms of the ability of people to spend money. And we know that that's what's sorely needed right now, sorely needed right now. In fact, a lot of the jobs that people are doing that we've been running around calling essential are these jobs, are these very jobs we're talking about. And this is like this is like a moral check for this country, quite frankly, and whether it's really willing to like pay what, what they're worth and not force people to go on programs and wonder every year whether they're going to get funding for their badger care or whatever. Let's pay people a living wage. So this is a really, really important fight. And I'm glad we're talking about it. And I really want to encourage people. Robert mentioned an important thing. When you call Ron Kine, make sure that he doesn't just say, I'm for the 15. No, no, no. That he's for 15 in reconciliation. And that that he understands that you know that if he's not for that, he's not really for it when it matters. And it's important that their office hear that. And that's an important role we can play. Um, so really want to encourage folks to make those calls. Uh, before we go, Robert, you got more? All right. Robert. Yeah, I just say this because you're not all kind constituents, but unkind. Just say it has to be in the COVID relief and that he needs to push forward and get that commitment. But in addition, calls to Mark Pocan, Tammy Baldwin, Gwen Moore, your Republican are all good because it makes them stronger. So if you li- if Gwen Moore is your congresswoman, it's great that she has calls coming on this. It makes her fight harder. So don't uh, call kind if he's your congressman, but call everyone else, too. Before we go, and we have a, just a few minutes, I want to, Claire, I, Robert, want to get your thoughts. The really important studies being released today that I think shows just dramatically what COVID has meant to this country and the loss of life. We're gonna, it's being released today. We lost a whole year of life expectancy. And for uh, African-Americans, it's three times worse which means, folks, we're, our life expectancy is back to 2006 levels. Um, Claire? Yeah, so we've talked in um, the last couple of years, I think, about um, how the sort of life expectancy uh, for people in the United States had dipped slightly for the last couple of years. Um, and this was a, a really dramatic uh, tip downwards. So um, for uh, sort of on average for um, men and women in the country, the uh, life expectancy um, has dipped to 77.8 years. Um, for women, it's a little bit higher, 80 and a half. For men, se- uh, 75. And so it, it's a precipitous dip. And of course, COVID accounts for a lot of that. Um, I think it's a really clear a measure another one as if we needed more of um, just how terrible um, this pandemic has been in terms of loss of life. Uh, but there's also, I think, the things that were at play already uh, that were affecting in earlier past couple of years, um, the decrease in life expectancy, I imagine. So things like, you know, people with death by suicide, um, death by 
uh, a drug overdose, sort of the the symptoms of, of hopelessness um, that that we talked about in you know previous years when this report came out. Um, I'm sure that the pandemic has has not helped those symptoms either. Yeah, and I, you know we just talked about the minimum wage, and when you talk about hopelessness, a lot of this for a lot of folks is uh, either economic hopelessness, and so I just think of this all puts this into perspective. We got to continue pushing to do better, to do better for everyone, and. Uh, with that, though, we are going to have to wrap up this battleground Wisconsin. Again, folks, make those calls to your congressional delegation about the importance of uh, the minimum wage uh, up to 15. But with that, we got to thank our producer, Brian Woldrich, who makes this show happen every week during COVID, every week before COVID. I think we're pushing almost a decade ourselves. Mr. Woldridge, we thank you much, but we'll see you all next week. Battleground Wisconsin.